Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, National Capital, Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, National Capital. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, National Capital, presented by Hakeem Alipokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Unique Equilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us once again from Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, published in 1776, and it's a continuation of, uh, get the name of this chapter once again, it's chapter two of book two, and it's called, Of Money Considered as a Particular Branch of the General Stock of Society, or of the Expense of Maintaining the National Capital. Part one I did a couple days ago, I had some crazy stuff going on that I had to tend to, and so I stopped in the middle of it while I was helping take care of a friend. But now I, uh, I took my time back. Sometimes people become time vampires, even when you're helping them out. Some people just don't know how to take uh, good things into their life. So I'm going to continue here from approximately where I left off and I move on through the rest of this chapter. I'll do my best to get through it as quickly as possible, although that never really seems to happen because I have a lot of opinions and thoughts on this, uh, this subject matter. So, And then later on I'll get on with the other portion of the Wealth Attraction Research from the Little Book of Economics, How Money Works, and possibly in some separate recordings and talks um, the psychology of money, which has been an incredible book. So right away here, I'm going to start. Uh, let's see if I can figure out where did I leave off. Well, I'll go back to <coughs> the previous page I was on here and start from there. So let's take a look here. Adam Smith writes, what is the proportion which the circulating money of any country bears to the whole value of the annual produce circulated by means of it, it is perhaps impossible to determine. Well, the thing about uh, this, now I recall as I read that, the point that I've been getting to that Adam Smith has been making is the is what money really is. I mean, he did a whole writing before on what money actually is, but he over and over again defines it here as money is not actually the paper, right, that we use to exchange in most places, right, for the things that we need, right? And it's not even the gold, or silver, or oil that is supposed to be back of it. It's actually the produce of the land, right, and the labor of humankind. So real money, the value of anything, really lies in what you can exchange for it, the necessaries of life. 
and at least that's what I'm going to continue to simplify the definition of. Of course, it could be said that oil itself is a necessary of life, the petrochemical, um, being that we use it for so many fuel reasons and the lubricant and so on and so forth. But I'm really going to continue to talk about things like uh, fresh air, clean water, and healthy food and the means by which to continue those elements for the healthy sustainability of, of life on the planet. But, of course, I'm not excluding things like oil or other things that might be necessary. Specifically, we can even extend it to things that are necessary for technology, like palladium, like gold, like silver, and other precious metals that are useful today in technology. But I'm going way back. I'm going primitive. I'm going even post-apocalyptic, like fictional zombie apocalypse type shit where, you know, gold and silver won't be that valuable unless you're making some kind of weapons from it. I mean, unless werewolves are real and you need to make silver bullets or something like that. I mean, let's, let's look at it as the produce of the land and the labor of mankind, like what people can do, what can you exchange for it, right? The labor, can you, uh, can you filter and clean water? Can you uh, grow food? Can you uh, husband livestock? Can you store different kinds of foods and things like that? Um, are you good at making weapons or even hunting uh, paraphernalia and things like that? Are you good at defense, self-defense? What kind of technology or knowledge that you have so those are the, and that would that would fall into the, the the labor of humankind. What you can do with the produce of the land, meaning what can what can people do with raw materials? That's real value, and what it can exchange for the raw materials that other people have labored to make into something that's that's valuable. And again, you know, value can be measured in its use value and its exchange value, and so, and what, what it can be exchanged for. You know, it's useless if you can't exchange it for things that you actually need. And so let us continue now. So this, this might not uh, immediately address what I just said there, but this is what he's been talking about previously as I read this chapter and the, the first part that I did this a couple days ago. So continuing, what is the proportion with which the circulating money of any country bears to the whole value of the annual produce circulated by means of it, it is perhaps impossible to determine. It has been computed by different authors at a fifth, at a tenth, at a twentieth, and at a thirtieth part of that value. So, right? So he's saying the circulating money of any country, what does it bear to the whole value of the annual produce circulated by means of it, right? So what portion, right, what, what fraction, what percentage of the money in the country, like the dollar bills, gold, right, how much of that bears, how much of it, what proportion of that is what the actual annual produce, those things that are wanted, needed, and useful, those things that are valuable in use and exchange, right, so it's impossible to determine, but the money has been computed by different authors that being a fifth, a tenth, a twentieth, and a thirtieth part, right? So a fifth being 20%, a 
the tenth being ten percent, the twentieth, right, and the thirtieth, and so on, right. So he he's saying that that um, that the amount of money nowhere comes close to, in any sense, the actual produce of the the country, right. So. Uh, so he says about a thirtieth part of that value, but how small soever the proportion which the circulating money may bear to the whole value of the annual produce as but a part, and frequently but a small part of that produce, is ever destined for the maintenance of industry. It must always bear a very considerable proportion to that part. When, therefore, by the substitution of paper, the gold and silver necessary for circulation is reduced to perhaps a fifth part of the former quantity, if the value of only the greater part of the other four-fifths be added to the funds which are destined for the maintenance of industry, it must make a very considerable addition to the quantity of that industry and, consequently, to the value of the annual produce of land and labor. So basically, again, it's just being said that whatever paper, gold and silver is there, um, it's used to maintain the industry. And it's, it makes a very considerable addition to the quantity of the industry, meaning the circulating money is there to, one, maintain the machinery, the fixed capital, as it were, for producing. So, it is a, so even though it's a small part of it, right, it's significant in that, it, that that's the part of it that goes around to maintain the things that actually help to produce the to you know, to till the fields and to work the land and make the materials into different things that are useful by people. Continuing, an operation of this kind has, within these five and twenty or thirty years, been performed in Scotland by the erection of new banking companies in almost every considerable town and even in some country villages. The effects of it have been precisely those above described. The businesses or the business of the country is almost entirely carried on by means of the paper of those different banking companies with which purchases and payments of all kind are commonly made. I mean, he, it's interesting that if people were a little bit more aware of this writing, we wouldn't be calling things like private banks and capitalism, some kind of evil conspiracy theory or anything like that, when it's just plainly laid out exactly what it is and what it does. I mean, even earlier in this chapter, he described fractional banking based on derivatives. That, And even just in the part that I read earlier just now, that the circulating money is only a, a, a fifth, a tenth, a twentieth, or a thirtieth that of the actual produce of the land. Because the goal that people are putting in the bank, right? Let's just say, like, for example, right now, just to give it a flat number, that an ounce of gold is worth $2,000, right? Well, for that $2,000 that's in the bank, um, the, the, the bank can then produce another uh, 18000 of that and say that there's $20,000 that people can, that it can loan out in paper and promissory notes because it's assuming that not everybody's going to make a run on the bank and ask for each of their $2,000 worth of gold. So they loan out 
all this other stuff is so people come in and be and say, you know, I want a tenth of this, right? I want uh, 200 bucks, you know, a $200 ingot of gold, you know, here and there. They're not going to, you know, be cleared out. If everybody did, then that would be a problem. But that's the fractional reserve thing. They're lending out, and that's why they, they lend out an interest. So they, So first of all, the one thing that they're doing is they're lending out way more than they have and then co and then making money off of what they lent out that they didn't have in the first place. It, it, it's really wicked, but it's all explained here and it's not it's not a secret and never has been. The only way that it's made a secret, um, if you will, the conspiracy is in education. The real cover-up is happens in in schools. That's where it happens. That's where, where people are illiterate in, in finance. I mean, that's where the real problem lies. But let's go. So he continues. The effects of it have been precisely those above described. The business of the country is almost entirely carried on by means of the paper of those different banking companies with which purchases and payments of all kind are commonly made, right? Silver, let me, let me make my sound effects with my, my coins here. Silver very seldom appears except in the change of a 20-shilling banknote, and gold still seldomer. But though the conduct of all those different companies has not been unexceptional, unexceptionable and has accordingly required an act of parliament to regulate it, the country, notwithstanding, has evidently derived great benefit from their trade. I have heard it asserted that the trade of the city of Glasgow doubled in about 15 years after the first erection of the banks there, and that the trade of Scotland has more than quadrupled since the first erection of the two public banks at Edinburgh, of which the one, called the Bank of Scotland, was established by Act of Parliament in 1695, the other called the Royal Bank by Royal Charter in 1727. Whether the trade, either of Scotland in general or of the city of Glasgow in particular, has really increased in so great a proportion during so short a period, I do not pretend to know. If either of them has increased in this proportion, it seems to be an effect too great to be accounted for by the sole operation of this cause. It's a good point, right? So, if it has, it's not by the sole operation of the fact that those banks have sprouted up, right? Continuing, that the trade and industry of Scotland, however, have increased very considerably during this period and that the banks have contributed a good deal to this increase cannot be doubted. But how did those banks contribute to that increase? By fiat, right? By, by basically lending out what they don't have, collecting more. I mean, this is, think about this, right? So you have $2,000 in a bank and you can loan out $20,000. And then on that $20,000, which of which only 2,000 is there, so you're making up another 18,000, right? Let's just say you, you have all that 18,000 out, right? Well, let's say the whole 20,000, 
And even just charging one, let's say, a low interest rate, 1% interest on it, right, in a certain period. So 1% comes back, 20 bucks, right, for every, uh, for like every period, let's say after um, every quarter. So 20 bucks times 4 is 80. So now you're getting back 20 times 80, right? Which is a hundred and uh, um, sixteen hundred. So another one thousand six hundred on top of every two thousand that's loaned out. So in a year, you get back for every two thousand loaned out, you get back another one thousand six hundred on top of that, right? Times twenty. Right. So that's a one thousand uh, times twenty is twenty thousand plus another. Tw uh, what was the number I said? Um, 1,600. So six. Uh, I, I lost my numbers um, for a second here. Oh, yeah. So 20 times 600, that would be another um, 20 times 600 is 12,000. I mean, 1,200. So you get all of that money back on top of it. So 2,200. I think I'm not using a calculator, but. Um, times the money that was loaned out. Let me actually put write this down so I don't confuse myself. It actually isn't really important the numbers necessarily because I'm making they're all arbitrary. I'm just making it up for an example. But the point is is that oh, if I maybe if I simplify it to one and multiply that by twenty, right? So the one two thousand dollars that's lent out, right? And let's just say at one um, percent of this 2,000, right? 10% would be 200, 1% would be 20. So then you have, uh, uh, and that 1% interest happens like every quarter, um, or yeah, every every quarter, so four times. So that's 80, right? 80 comes back. Um, so you've lent out 2,000, but you get back $2,080. And now because you've multiplied it, um, by by 20, right? You only had 2,000. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's 10. So you're getting 2,080 times 10 is 20,800 comes back altogether from the the money that was loaned out. And so there's so much money coming back in from basically what was made up that wasn't even there to begin with, based on the reputation of the bank. And whether or not the, everybody agrees, they yeah, that they're trustworthy and so on and so forth. But it was, but it came from something that didn't even exist in the first place. Just that, oh, we have a fraction of it on reserve. That's fractional reserve banking. And so that money comes back into the country, and they can then go ahead and use that made-up money and buy things from that we need from other countries, bring it back in. And continue to. I mean, it's it's no wonder. But it could be now that I'm thinking about it too. One justification for that could be based on something that he wrote earlier, which is that the the money in circulation doesn't even come anywhere near to the actual produce that's being made in the country. So, in some ways, it equals itself out in a way. Um, if in fact 
that's true, which it, which it is. I mean, there's not as much money in circulation as there are, as there is produce of the land and labor available. I mean, if there was, then everybody would have everything they needed and everybody would have jobs that were paying them. So, which can be fixed, I suppose, in some way. But um, again, I told you, I was going to take a lot longer because I'm working all the stuff out in my head. I'm trying to figure it out as I go along too to get to the bottom of this. Although I do, my base understanding will remain that real value is in what you can exchange, what you have for something else that's, you know, needed and useful. To me, the biggest value is in use value and what you can exchange it for other things of use. I don't think that um, everything else is secondary and tertiary, right, to me. Things that are um, that are luxuries and things like that. Although it could be said to a certain extent that some luxuries are necessary. I mean, people do need um, time off, right? People do need to have leisure um, for a good health. So, all right. Let's continue. The value of the silver money which circulated in Scotland before the Union in 1707 and which immediately after it was brought into the Bank of Scotland in order to be recoined amounted to 411,117 pounds, 10 shillings and nine, I don't know, that's pence sterling. No account has been got of gold coin. But it appears from the ancient accounts of the Mint of Scotland that the value of the gold annually coined somewhere exceeded or somewhat exceeded that of the silver. There were a good, which is interesting, because gold is easier to mine than silver. So why would there be not as much gold as silver? I don't know. Again, all right, well. There were a good many people, too, upon this occasion who, from a diffidence of repayment, did not bring their silver into the Bank of Scotland, and there was, besides, some English coin which was not called in. The whole value of the gold and silver, therefore, which circulated in Scotland before the Union, cannot be estimated at less than a million sterling. So, he's, the Union, by the way, is, you know, the Union Jack the, the uh, Great Britain is the kingdom and the United um, the United Kingdom as it's called right England Scotland Ireland all that um, okay so it seems to have constituted almost the whole circulation of that country for though the circulation of the Bank of Scotland which had then no rival was considerable it seems to have made but a very small part of the whole. In the present times, the whole circulation of Scotland cannot be estimated at less than two millions, of which that part consists in gold and silver, most probably does not amount to half a million. Wait, let me see that again. In the present times, the whole circulation of Scotland cannot be estimated at less than two millions, of which that part which consists in gold and silver, most probably does not amount to half a million. Interesting. Okay, so again, the fractional... Um, relationship, the proportional relationship that there's the, the circulation, the value of the produce of the land and the labor of humankind is two million, but the, the, the part that they value in gold and silver does not even amount to half a million, which is one-fourth or 25% of that, right? 
So if I can. All right. So here we go. But though the circulating gold and silver of Scotland have suffered so great a diminution during this period, its real riches and prosperity do not appear to have suffered any. You see that? Here he goes again. Real riches and prosperity. Again, I'm putting that down to the produce of the land and the labor of humankind, the people. The, the land and the people. Okay, so its real riches and prosperity do not appear to have suffered any. Its agriculture, manufactures, and trade, on the contrary, the annual produce of its land and labor have evidently been augmented. Just exactly what I said. Remember, augmented means to be made better in some way, right? Continuing, it's, it is chiefly by discounting bills of exchange, that is, by advancing money upon them before they are due, that the greater part of banks and bankers issue their promissory notes. They deduct always upon whatever sum they advance the legal interest till the bill shall become due. The payment of the bill, when it does become due, replaces to the bank the value of which of what had been advanced. So together with a clear profit of the interest, the banker who advances to the merchant whose bill he discounts, not gold and silver, but his own promissory notes, has the advantage of being able to discount to a greater amount the whole value of his promissory notes, which he finds by experience are commonly in circulation. He is thereby enabled to make his clear gain of interest on so much a larger sum. And that's what I was uh, fumbling my way through earlier about the interest. I should have just read on and I would have gotten to that. All right, so uh, the commerce of Scotland, which at present is not very great, was still more considerable when the first two banking companies were established, and those companies would have had but little trade had they confined their business to the discounting of bills of exchange. They invented, therefore, another method of issuing their promising promissory notes by granting what they called cash accounts, that is, by giving credit to the extent of a certain sum, two or three thousand pounds, for example, to any individual who could procure two persons of undoubted credit and good landed estate to become surety for him, that whatever money should be advanced to him within the sum for which the credit had been given should be repaid upon demand together with the legal interest. Right, so those are like cosigners, right? Cosigners and collateral, right? So you got to any individual who procure two persons of undoubted credit, cosigners, and good landed estate, um, collateral, right, to become surety for him, right? So, yeah. So whatever money should be advanced to him within the sum for which the credit had been given should be repaid upon demand together with the legal interest, the legal interest. Sir, credits of this kind are, I believe, commonly granted by banks and bankers in all different parts of the world. But the easy terms upon which the Scottish banking companies accept of repayment are, so far as I know, peculiar to them and have perhaps been the principal cause both of the great trade of those companies and of the benefit which the country has received from it. Right, so they're loaning out money and in, in interest so that these people company owners can go ahead and buy the equipment, machinery, and hire the labor that they need to make a profit. And then when they do, they pay that to the bank within the time. And so on, the economy goes up and up and up, right? 
Whoever has a credit of this kind with one of those companies and borrows a thousand pounds for it, for example, may repay this sum piecemeal by 20 and 30 pounds at a time, the company discounting a proportionable part of the interest of the great sum from the day on which each of those small sums is paid till the whole be in this manner repaid. All merchants, therefore, and almost all men of business find it convenient to keep such cash accounts with them and are thereby interested to promote the trade of those companies by readily receiving their notes in all payments and by encouraging all those with whom they have any influence to do the same. The banks, when their customers apply to them for money, generally advance it to them in their own promissory notes, private banking. These the merchants pay away to the manufacturers for goods, the manufacturers to the farmers for materials and provisions, the farmers to their landlords for the rent, and the landlords repay them to the merchants for the conveniences and luxuries with which they supply them. And the merchants again return to them, return them to the banks in order to balance their cash accounts or to replace what they may have borrowed of them, and thus almost the whole money business of the country is transacted by means of them, hence the great trade of those companies. So transacted by means of this paper money issued by the private banks, right? Continuing. Hey, Zach. Hey, Jenny. How y'all doing over there on Colin? Let me, while I'm at it, say hello to Lee News Debate, Kristen Brown, Soldier of God, Linda Vander Murray, uh, Murray. And Colby, Greg's Take, Sharon, Marcianne, Sunny, and Truly Julie, and Abd Mansuri. Hello, guys, over on Wisdom. All right. Um, so let's see. By means of this cash accounts, every merchant can, without imprudence, carry on a greater trade than he otherwise could do. Let's see. Jenny asks here. Oh, yeah, what am I reading today? Wealth of the Nations, again, I'm continuing from the last time I did a couple days. I haven't been on for a little bit because I was helping out my friend, Jenny, which I had to um, uh, I had to let that babe walk, learn how to walk on its own. And sure enough, when you push somebody, they all of a sudden come up with all these resources when you stop taking care of them, when you stop giving them everything. It's kind of funny how that works. Um, so... All of a sudden, they're completely dependent upon me until I'm saying, you know what, this is enough. <laughs> it's like, you got to go and do what you need, do, figure this shit out. And then all of a sudden, hey, all this, like, magic happens somehow. Stop giving people fish, teach them how to fish, right? <clears throat> so funny. But what was, I think that what was me- that was meant to happen was to show me how I actually tripled, found a way to triple my daily income, <laughs> which is nuts. Like I, I actually tripled my daily income over the past week that I've been taking care of this person because I figured out, I, I thought to myself, how am I going to, now I've got another person to help out for a little while and, and this is going to be indefinite. And I had to figure out how to do that. And then all of a sudden I literally tripled my income my daily income and figured out how to do it easily and still have time to come and sit at the bookstore and read and do all that stuff like that and sleep, yes, and all that. And so it, it did me a favor, actually. 
Um, but then when I looked at it, I thought to myself, well, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to keep taking care. Like, it was just, I don't even want to get into the details. All in all, everybody is better for the emergency having happened and me having to leave uh, Richmond to come down there and pick them up. And, and anyway, I'm going to be going back up to Richmond on the 21st because uh, my sister, I'm driving her to the airport. And she's coming back on the 23rd, which then I'll drive her back down here to Virginia Beach and then figure out things from there. So anyway, yep, continue with Adam Smith. Uh, this is um, this is part two I'm reading of um, the chapter. That's chapter two of book two called Of Money Considered as a Particular Branch of the General Stock of the Society or of the Expense of Maintaining the National Capital. And I'm uh, talking myself through it as well to make sure that I figure it out or at least um, having the delusion that I understand it. <clears throat> Whatever it is, um, my my level of arrogance won't allow me to not push forward um, without at least thinking or pretending that I know what I'm talking about so far. So here we go. Continuing. Yeah, true about pushing the yeah exactly pushing the birdies out of the nest. That's right. Um, it 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 was helpful. Um, it's amazing the things that happen. Like all of a sudden, she came up with all these resources, and it's it's pretty nuts. Well, I just saw an old friend, a, a real estate agent buddy of mine, who um, I had uh, was showing me some commercial properties. Well, if she notices me, she notices me. I'm gonna, I gotta finish reading it, this book. All right. So, by means of those cash accounts, every merchant can, without imprudence, carry on a greater trade than he otherwise could do. If there are two merchants, one in London and the other in Edinburgh, who employ equal stocks in the same branch of trade, the Edinburgh merchant can, without imprudence, carry on a greater trade and give employment to a greater number of people than the London merchant. The London merchant must always keep by him a considerable sum of money, either in his own coffers or in those of his banker, who gives him no interest for it in order to answer the demands continually coming upon him for payment of the goods which he purchases upon credit. Let the... Uh, gosh, what? When I get distracted, I st I'm reading the words and there's zero comprehension just went in just now. Like, I have to put myself back into the, to, to this right now. Okay. By means of those cash accounts, every merchant can, without imprudence, carry on a greater trade than he otherwise could do. Right. Gets loans, you can do more business. Right. If there are two merchants, one in London and the other in Edinburgh, who employ equal stocks in the same branch of trade, the Edinburgh merchant can, without imprudence, carry on a greater trade and give employment to a greater number of people than the London merchant. And the London merchant must always keep by him a considerable sum of money, either in his own coffers or in those of his banker, who gives him no interest for it, in order to answer the demands continually coming upon him for payment of the goods which he purchases upon credit. Ah, I see. Now, the interest is balancing out each other. So, he's keeping in his own coffers or in those of the bank who gives him no interest for it, in order to answer the demands continually coming upon him for repayment of the goods 
which he purchases upon credit, right? The credit, the credit, you have to pay back interest on that, and then whatever interest he would have been accruing in by keeping the money in the bank gets canceled out by that, gives him no credit for it. I mean, that's how I'm going to read that right now again. All right, so let the ordinary amount of this sum be supposed 500 pounds. The value of the goods in his warehouse must always be less by 500 pounds than it would have been had he not been obliged to keep such a sum employed. Let us suppose that he generally disposes of his whole stock upon hand or of goods to the value of his whole stock upon hand once in the year. By being obliged to keep so great a sum unemployed, he must sell in a year 500 pounds worth less goods than he might otherwise have done. Right, because he has to keep that there in order to keep up with the credit he has to pay back. All right. It's making sense to me. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the simple numbers here, right? I'm getting this. I'm going to be, a, I'm gonna be a, a banker, a bankster, actually. A combination of a banker and a gangster. All right, let's see. Kevin Levin, Mark Levin teaser for his new show tonight with Thomas Sowell. Oh, cool. Tonight, a brand new Saturday episode of Life, Liberty, and Levin. Thomas Sowell and Victor David Hanson. Thank you, Jenny, for sharing that. Um, I might be working... Um, but I'll see if I can listen in um, while I'm working. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So the merchant in Edinburgh, on the other hand, keeps no money unemployed for answering such occasional demands. When they actually come upon him, he satisfies them with cash from his cash account with the bank, and gradually replaces the sum borrowed with the money or paper which comes in from the occasional sales of his goods. Yeah. So this guy's operating it differently. That's why he said that the the bank in uh, in in uh, Edinburgh can do more business than the one in England because he's all right. Got it. So with the same stock, therefore, he can, without imprudence, have at all times in his warehouse a larger quantity of goods than the London merchant merchant and can thereby both make a greater profit himself and give constant employment to a greater number of industrious people who prepare those goods for the market. Hence, the great benefit which the country has derived from this trade. Hmm. The facility of discounting bills of exchange, it may be thought, indeed, gives the English merchants a conveniency equivalent to the cash accounts of the Scotch merchants. But the Scotch merchants, it must be remembered, can discount their bills of exchange as easily as the English merchants and have, besides, the additional conveniency of their cash accounts. Oh, that's why, because the, the, the English merchants I'm looking here don't have the same thing as the cash accounts, okay? But they can take the cash out to pay for stuff. All right. Remember, this was because of uh, parliamentary uh, regulations foisted upon them at the time the legal, legal stuff in the banking industry that allows this. All right. Continuing. The whole paper money of every kind which can easily circulate in any country never can exceed the value of the gold and silver of which it supplies the place or which, huh, interesting he says that, the whole paper money of every kind which can easily circulate in any country can never exceed the value of the gold and silver of which it supplies the place, or which, 
the commerce being supplied being or which the commerce being supposed the same would circulate there if there was no paper money hmm. that's that would be considered the gold standard that's the gold standard defined right there that the, the paper money should be backed by the same value of gold and silver silver certificates gold standard that's all that same thing right there so it should not exceed it can never exceed the value of the gold and silver but that's what has happened with the private banking industry <clears throat> so he continues if 20 shilling notes for example are the lowest paper money current in Scotland the whole of that currency which can easily circulate there cannot exceed the sum of gold and silver which would be necessary for transacting the annual exchange of 20 shillings value and upwards usually transacted within that country should the circulating paper at any time exceed that sum as the excess could neither be sent abroad nor be employed in the circulation of the country it must immediately return upon the banks to be exchanged for gold and silver right that's right it should immediately be able to be exchanged for gold and silver many people would immediately perceive that they had more of this paper than was necessary for transacting their business at home and as they could not send it abroad they would immediately demand payment of it from the banks when this superfluous paper was converted into gold and silver they could easily find a use for it by sending it abroad but they could not find none of what they could find none while it remained in the shape of paper there you go because that is where the gold and silver comes in it's it's more easily exchanged internationally at least at that time because of a a a internationally agreed upon value of it and what it could exchange for then could the paper of any country right especially the paper being of those private banks this the pieces are coming together more more and more to me i'm getting it right but they could find none while it remained in the shape of paper there would immediately therefore be a run upon the banks hey cool he uses that term there there would immediately therefore be a run upon the banks to the whole extent of this superfluous paper and if they showed any difficulty or backwardness in payment to a much greater extent the alarm which this would occasion necessarily increasing the run yeah I remember I saw that happening in 2008 and I had no idea what was going on people were lining up at the banks to pull their money out and I, I was thinking myself, what the hell was going on I was I was in California at the time and people were lined up outside these banks I was just thinking to myself what the hell is happening like why are all these people standing up I, I it, it didn't for some reason it didn't affect me at all I don't know what the hell I was doing but I wasn't running on the bank trying to get all my money out of there um, it was weird um, but all right so continuing over and above the expenses which are common to every branch of trade such as the expense of house rent the wages of servants clerks accounts etc the expenses peculiar to a bank consist chiefly in two articles first in the expense of keeping at all times in its coffers for answering the occasional demands of the holders of its notes a large sum of money of which it loses the interest and secondly in the expense of replenishing those coffers as fast as they are emptied by answering such occasional demands hmm. bankers a banking company which issues more paper 
than can be employed in the circulation of the country and of which the excess is continually returning upon them for payment ought to increase the quantity of gold and silver which they keep at all times in their coffers, not only in proportion to this excessive increase of their circulation, but in a much greater proportion, their notes returning upon them much faster than in proportion to the excess of their quantity. Such a company, therefore, ought to increase the first article of their expense, not only in proportion to this forced increase of their business, but in a much greater proportion. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be obvious if, if the, the agreed-upon international unit of exchange was in gold and silver, and that's what it should be backed by always? Um, but that's what uh, BRICS was supposed to be doing. But I just saw something not too long ago I was looking at um, that said that... Uh, um, that there was a problem... But of course, everybody's going to try to appease the whole, bring down the whole BRICS group as much as they can. I just saw something today about that. As I go on uh, to say hello to Mr. and Mrs. Googles over here, um, it says Bloomberg hits BRICS as U.S. power challenged. Uh, what does Bloomberg have to say? By Gregory Shupak, September 14, 2023. Uh, you know what? Maybe I'll read that later. I am not going to look at that right now, because this is taking me long enough as it is to figure out uh, this chapter two of book two of Wealth of Nations. All right. Uh, yes, so here we go. A banking company which issues more paper than can be employed in the circulation of the country and of which the excess is continually returning upon them for payment ought to, to increase the quantity of gold and silver with which they keep at all times in their coffers, not only in proportion to this excessive increase of their circulation, but in a much greater proportion, their notes returning upon them much faster than in proportion to the excess of their quantity. Such a company, therefore, ought to increase the first article of their expense, not only in proportion to this forced increase of their business, but in a much greater proportion. The coffers of such a company, too, though they ought to be filled much fuller, yet must empty themselves much faster than if their business was confirmed within more reasonable bounds, and must require not only a more violent, but a more constant and uninterrupted exertion of expense in order to replenish them. The coin, too which is thus continually drawn in such large quantities from their coffers, cannot be employed in the circulation of the country. It comes in place of a paper, which is over and above what can be employed in that circulation, and is therefore over and above what can be employed in it too. But as that coin will not be allowed to lie idle, it must, in one shape or another, be sent abroad in order to find that profitable employment which it cannot find at home. And this continual exportation of gold and silver, by enhancing the difficulty, must necessarily enhance still further the expense of the bank in finding new gold and silver in order to replenish those coffers which empty themselves so very rapidly. Such a company, therefore, must, in proportion to this forced increase of their business, increase the second article of their expense still more than the first. 
So the gold is leaving the country as the international medium of exchange faster than it can be filled up. And therefore, that's probably what happened while the dollar was taken off of the, the gold standard, right? Because we're sending the stuff out in exchange to buy foreign goods. Um, and it was going out in fast proportion. Then other places were sending gold and silver to us to buy our goods, which is a reason why um, made in America should be a bigger thing. Um, <clears throat> so many things were made other places, but hey, what do I know? It just seems so simple right here, but, it, but uh, there are, of course, other intricacies. All right. Let us suppose that all the paper of a particular bank which the circulation of the country can easily absorb and employ amounts exactly to 40,000 pounds, and that for answering occasional demands, this bank is obliged to keep at all times in its coffers 10,000 pounds in gold and silver. Right, and we're talking about pounds as in the, the currency, name of the currency in England, not in the weight. Right? So we're clear, right? Because he says the let's just say the circulation of the country can easily absorb and employ amounts to exactly 40,000 pounds and that for answering occasional demands this bank is obliged to keep at all times in its coffers 10,000 pounds in gold and silver see this is again the fractional they only have one-fourth of it they're only obliged to keep one-fourth of that value of gold and silver in there they have 10,000 pounds worth of gold and silver but 40,000 right okay continuing should this bank attempt to circulate 44,000 pounds, the 4,000 pounds, which are over and above what the circulation can easily absorb and employ, will return upon it almost as fast as they are issued. For answering occasional demands, therefore, this bank ought to keep at all times in its coffers not 11,000 pounds only, but 14,000 pounds. It will thus gain nothing by the interest of the 4,000 pounds excessive circulation, and it will lose the whole expense of continually collecting 4,000 pounds in gold and silver, which will be continually going out of its coffers as fast as they are brought into them. Had every particular banking company always understood and attended to its own particular interest, the circulation never could have been overstocked with paper money. God, I mean, this is, how is this 1776? It sounds like it's like right fucking now. Had every particular banking company always understood and it made, okay, let's be real, right? It's not that they didn't understand. But maybe the word understood being here is means to be responsible, right? Had every particular banking company always been responsible and attended to its own particular interest, I could replace that, right? Or ethical, right, even, um, to its own particular interest. The circulation never could have been overstocked with paper money, inflation, overstocked with paper money. But every particular banking company has not always understood or attended to its own particular interest, and the circulation has frequently been overstocked with paper money. By issuing too great a quantity of paper, of which the excess was continually returning, in order to be exchanged for gold and silver, the Bank of England was for many years altogether years together obliged to coin gold to the extent of between 800,000 pounds and a million a year, or at an average about 850,000 pounds. For this great coinage, the bank, 
In consequence of the worn and degraded state into which the gold coin had fallen a few years ago, was frequently obliged to purchase gold bullion at the high price of four pounds an ounce, which it soon after issued in coin at three pounds seventeen shillings ten and a half pence an ounce, losing in this manner between two and a half and three percent upon the coinage of so very large a sum. Though the bank therefore paid no seniorage. Okay, what is that? What is that? Uh, mm, mm, that word I have not seen in a long time. What is it? Is that seniorage? 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 All right, let's see. Senior. Seniorage. Seniorage. Huh. This spelling S E. Seniorage. I think it's seniorage. Sign. Sign. That's. Huh. All right, senior, there we go, seniorage, seniorage, seniorage is the profit of a government, a government makes from issuing currency, it's the difference between the currency's face value and the cost to produce it, for example, if a government produces a $10 bill and it costs $5 to make this, to make, the seniorage is $5. Seniorage is a way for governments to generate revenue without levying conventional taxes. It's also the revenue earned by the government while printing or minting money. Seniorage can also refer to the interest a central bank charges from lending commercial banks its money. All right. Fucking seniorage. All right. Hey, Peter, how you doing? Welcome to Colin, sir. Oh my gosh, this is insane. This is, it's, I mean, I'm telling you, this is the reason why I understand now it's so important even reading these classics, because this same shit is going on right now. It hasn't changed. He's explaining, explaining exactly. It's like, almost like Adam Smith has a fucking spell over the world. Like, like this, The Wealth of Nations is a freaking alchemical spell book. It's a magic book of sorcery. It's crazy. It's, all of this is the same. I'm not, as I'm understanding it, none, nothing else different is happening. All right, so let's get back to that part. Though the bank, therefore, paid no seniorage, though the government was properly at the expense of the coinage, this liberality of government did not prevent altogether the expense of the bank. The Scottish banks, in consequence of an excess of the same kind, he's talking about the paper money, they had more paper money in circulation than was able to be backed by gold, right? The Scottish banks, in consequence of an excess of the same kind, were all obliged to employ constantly agents at London to collect money for them at an expense which was seldom below one and a half or two percent. This money was sent down by the wagon and insured by the carriers at an additional expense of three quarters percent or 15 shillings from the hundred pounds. Those agents were not always able to replenish the coffers of their employers so fast as they were emptied. In this case, the resource of the banks was to draw upon their correspondence in London bills of exchange to the extent of the sum which they wanted. When those correspondents afterwards drew upon them for the payment of the sum, together with the interest and the commission, some of those banks, from the distress into which their excessive circulation had thrown them, had sometimes no other means of satisfying this drought but by drawing a second set of bills either upon the same or upon some other correspondence in London, and the same sum, or rather 
bills for the same sum would in this manner make sometimes more than two or three journeys. The debtor bank paying always the interest and commission upon the whole accumulated sum. Even those Scotch banks, which never distinguished themselves by their extreme imprudence, were sometimes obliged to employ this ruinous resource. Man, I just got a glimpse into what the hell is going on in the, the world economy. Right there in those few uh, paragraphs. Like, the banks really fuck shit up. Private banks. And they keep, and they're still doing it. The, and it's paper money. It's not real money. And God, people are killing each other for that shit. All right. The gold coin, which was paid out either by the Bank of England or by the Scotch banks in exchange for that part of their paper, which was over and above what could be employed in the circulation of the country, being likewise over and above what could be employed in that circulation, was sometimes sent abroad in the shape of coin sometimes melted down and sent abroad in the shape of bullion, and sometimes melted down and sold to the Bank of England at the high price of four pounds an ounce. It was the newest, the heaviest, and the best pieces only which were carefully picked out of the whole coin and either sent abroad or melted down. At home, and while they remained in the shape of coin, those heavy pieces were of no more value than the light but they were of more value abroad or when melted down into bullion at home. The Bank of England, notwithstanding their great annual coinage, found to their astonishment that there was every year the same scarcity of coin as there had been the year before, and that notwithstanding the great quantity of good and new coin, which was every year issued from the bank, the state of the coin, instead of growing better and better, became every year worse and worse. Wow, this is the depletion of the gold backing of all, and silver, the precious metals backing all the paper money. Right there. They found it became worse and worse. Every year, they found themselves under the necessity of coining nearly the same quantity of gold as they had coined the year before. And from the continual rise in the price of gold bullion, in consequence of the continual wearing and clipping of the coin, the expense of this great annual coinage became every year greater and greater. Right, people would clip coins. That's why um, nowadays coins have those ridges on the side because of the clipping and shaving. People used to shave them down very small amounts off of it at a time while they were transporting it. Obviously, you know the same thing as um, what? How does that people call that again? What is that that word again? When people siphon off a little bit of money at a time. So can somebody help me with that word? Um, it's not quite embezzling. It's uh, forget what it's called, but it's when they just take a little bit. It'll come to my mind later, but I'll take a little tiny piece off at a time of like when they're doing transactions by computer nowadays, right? Just a little bit here and there, like a penny here, a penny there, fractions of pennies there until it accumulates into buildings, uh, buildings, billions, maybe even buildings, right? <clears throat> so let's see. Yeah, worse and worse. Every year they found themselves under the necessity of coining nearly the same quantity of gold as they had coined the year before, and from the continual rise in the price of gold bullion, in consequence, rise in the price, right? The, how do you raise the price? Let's see what I got over here. Skimming. Yeah, skimming off the top. Thank you, Dr. Robert James Goodman. Skimming off the top, like just a little bit of skimming off the top here and there, right? Um, but yeah, so how, but so now remember, how could the price 
Yeah, uh, thank you also, Jenny. I had to put that over in, in column as well. But how could the price raise, right? What does that mean? See, sometimes people, we, we, we got to remember that the price means the produce of the land. If we, if we look at it that way, right? So this is what it means by the, right? So in consequence of the continued wearing and clipping of coin, the expense of this great annual coinage became greater and greater, right? But it says they found um, that the, the continual rise in the price of gold bullion, so the rise in the price meant they had to give more of their domestic exports in exchange to fill their coffers up with the gold, right? So whatever we have at home, right, if, if, if one year it cost, you know, uh, let's just keep the, the number simple. It cost one pound of wheat for one ounce of silver. Now they have to pay one and a half or two pounds of wheat to get that same one ounce of silver. So that's how the price goes up. That's what that means right there. That's the, the simplest, uh, very oversimplified way of putting that. But that's exactly what it is because that's, that's really what price actually stands for is what can be exchanged for, what things that are actually needed and useful. And so their price of gold bullion went up every year, right? And the consequence of the continued wearing and clipping of the coin. The expense of this great annual coinage became every year greater and greater. The Bank of England, it is to be observed, by supplying its own coffers with coin, is indirectly obliged to supply the whole kingdom, into which coin is continually flowing from those coffers in a great variety of ways. Whatever coin, therefore, was wanted to support this excessive circulation both of Scotch and English paper money, whatever vacuities this excessive circulation occasioned in the necessary coin of the kingdom, the Bank of England was obliged to supply them. The Scotch banks, no doubt, paid all of them very dearly for their own imprudence and inattention. Remember, the word dearly is, means expensively. Paid them very, de paid all of them very dearly for their own imprudence and inattention. But the Bank of England paid very dearly not only for its own imprudence, but for the much greater imprudence of almost all the Scotch banks. This is fucked up. The overtrading of some bold projectors in both parts of the United Kingdom was the original cause of this excessive circulation of paper money. Man, I mean, I've, I, over and over again, it's the same situation today. If anybody doesn't know that this is the problem in the entire world economy right now, it's the private banks and the issuance of paper money. That's how it can be summed. If you just look into that, you'll see the fucking problem. And the only way to get around that is by is by skill skill building skill buildings in the understanding of the basics of what the produce of the land really is and having skills of labor certain things that you can do and things that you know to hedge against that what is real valuable what is real value what is really useful and what useful things that you have can exchange for something else that you might need. Right, so this is why skilled trades are very, very important. People at home, oh my gosh, this, I'm, I'm starting to think that this might be the answer to a lot of issues. There's more people in the United States being skilled, learning a skilled trade, like things like, like welding and manufacturing of all kinds of things, electronics or putting things together, building, uh, construction, like, like real skilled trades. Not that you have to be employed in it all the time, but knowing these things will become enormously valuable 
over time and bringing more of the production and manufacturing home, the assembly of like electron, like just all of this stuff, which of course a lot of that stuff is going to be replaced by software and hardware, particularly robots, right? But there's going to be people who need to maintain and program this thing. So those are other skilled trades that people need to know, specifically in the, 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 the building, controlling, maintaining, and programming of robots and machinery. And people are going to want to know those things too. But okay, let me stop. I got to get get my head out of fucking Terminator right now. All right, so the Scotch banks, no doubt, paid all of them very dearly for their own imprudence and inattention, but the Bank of England paid very dearly, not only for its own imprudence, but for the much greater imprudence of almost all the Scotch banks. Fucking banks. The over-trading of some bold projectors in both parts of the United Kingdom was the original cause of this excessive circulation of paper money. What a bank can, with propriety, advance to a merchant or undertaker of any kind is not either the whole capital with which he trades or even any considerable part of that capital, but that part of it only which he would otherwise be obliged to keep by him unemployed and in ready money for answering occasional demands. If the paper money which the bank advances never exceeds this value, it can never exceed the value of the gold and silver, which would necessarily circulate in the country if there was no paper money. It can never exceed the quantity which the circulation of the country can easily absorb and employ. I got you. I'm good. How you doing, man? Good, man. Good you. Where you been? Go go where? I got signed, bro. I been signed for five months. Well, I know that. But I've been banned from being on tour. Oh yeah, I don't I, I don't work there anymore. I got fired for reading a book. Really? Yeah. So, <laughs> this in a new location we had is on uh, on peas, man. Uh, yeah. I'm out here, I got a Dan J. Rock. Yeah. He out here now, man. I got paid for HRT and motivation speech. Okay. I got my building license, man. Well, good. Good for you. Congratulations. Yeah, my boy just dropped me off. I'm playing ball. I got signed overseas, but I'm going to move it on now to, like, September next year. Yeah. Because they won't want to play. Me and him just, just had a meeting in the car. I told him, man, you got my phone. I got my real My real friend at home, Nigeria. Well, hold on for a second. Before you yeah, say too much. Saying, because it's recording on my podcast. Yeah. So I don't want you putting all your business yes, out there. Shout out yeah. to you. We'll talk. I'll be right yeah. here. I got you. And I, I have your Instagram. So I, I have Instagram right now. Okay. All right. All right. Well, just be t- I'll be here for a minute. Listen, man. We'll, we'll talk, man. I'm, I'm, I'm in the prop of uh, coming up to you. Uh, mentor will exchange numbers. And don't do me like that. No, I mean, well, here, I actually have... No, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to five below right there. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think I have... Bro, when I do that, man, just okay. come back. All right. I, I got, listen, I got two, two, I have the key to HRT. All right. I'm in my crib. All right, hit me up later then. I'm the key motivation speech over there. Okay. Well, I ain't been on there all day because I was... Got my license, my business license. Yeah, let me know about that listen, later. Listen, man, listen. Never broke. You know what we're talking about? I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know my brother from China came, Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. On Instagram, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, he had 
So when I see that the, if the paper money which the bank advances never exceeds the value, it can never exceed the value of the gold and silver which would necessarily circulate in the country. So wait, wait a minute, did that go back a page? Oh, no, 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 I didn't. All right, the paper money which the bank advances never exceeds this value. It can never exceed the value of the gold and silver, which would necessarily circulate in the country. If there was no paper money, it can never exceed the quantity which the circulation of the country can easily absorb and employ. Again, he's saying that. That's why I thought I was reading the same thing over again, because he said that on another page. It's the same thing again, right? It can never exceed the value of the gold and silver which necessarily circulate in the country if there was no paper money. It can never exceed the quantity which the circulation of the country can easily absorb and employ. When a bank discounts to a merchant a real bill of exchange drawn by a real creditor upon a real debtor and which, as soon as it becomes due, is really paid by that debtor, it only advances to him a part of the value which he would otherwise be obliged to keep by him, unemployed and in ready money, for answering occasional demands. When they say, again, when he says unemployed, keeping that means keeping, you can't use it for anything. The way he uses the word employed here means using it for um, buying goods and services or putting it out in circulation in some way, shape, or form, To which, which, which keeps reminding me of now the understanding more of a business system, which is having people and or money working your system for you. And the system, but I, I'm not going to get into that right now. But it's helping me to develop the, a better understanding of that. Um, when a bank discounts to a merchant a real bill of exchange drawn by a real creditor upon a real debtor, and which, as soon as it becomes due, is really paid by that debtor, it only advances to him a part of the value which he would otherwise be obliged to keep by him unemployed and in ready money for answering occasional demands. So keeping it liquid, he has to have that. The payment of the bill, when it becomes due, replaces to the bank the value of what it had advanced together with the interest. The coffers of the bank, so far as its dealings are confined to such customers, resemble a water pond from which, though a stream is continually running out, yet another is continually running in, fully equal to that which runs out, so that, without any further care or attention, the pond keeps always equally or very near equally full. Little or no expense can ever be necessary for replenishing the coffers of such a bank. Well, that's ideal. That's what it should be, ideally, but it's, it's actually not. Because it's more like a leaky bucket. A merchant, without over-trading, may frequently have occasion for a sum of ready money, even when he has no bills to discount. When a bank... Besides discounting his bills, advances him likewise upon such occasions, such sums upon his cash account, and accepts a piece of meal, a piece, accepts of a piecemeal repayment as the money comes from the occasional sales of his goods upon the easy terms of the banking companies of Scotland, it dispenses him entirely from the necessity of keeping any part of his stock by him unemployed and in ready money for answering occasional demands. Okay. So they let them pay it back little by little, and therefore it doesn't have him have to keep anything in savings on reserve. 
for it. He said that before, too. <clears throat> so when such demands actually come upon him, he can answer them sufficiently from his cash account. The bank, however, in dealing with such customers, ought to observe with great attention whether in the course of some short period of four, five, six, or eight months, for example, the sum of the repayments which it commonly receives from them is or is not fully equal to that of the advances which it commonly makes to them. If, within the course of such short periods, the sum of the repayments from certain customers is, upon most occasions, fully equal to that of the advances, it may safely continue to deal with such customers. Though the stream which is, in this case, continually running out from his coffers may be very large, that which is continually running into them must be at least equally large, so that without any further care or attention, those coffers are likely to be always equally or very nearly equally full, and scarce ever to require any extraordinary expense to replenish them. If, on the contrary, the sum of the repayments from certain other customers falls commonly very much short of the advances which it makes to them, it cannot with safety continue to deal with such customers, at least if they continue to deal with it in this manner. Yeah, of course, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that's, we're talking about common sense here, right? Common sense ain't so, ain't so common though, right? It, that uh, these things should you should be dealing with people who are able to pay their bills on time, right? Or at least pay the interest back to them, right? So uh, the stream, which is in this case continually running out from its coffers, is necessarily much larger than that which is continually running in, so that unless they are replenished by some great and continual effort of expense, those coffers must soon be exhausted altogether. The banking companies of Scotland, accordingly, were for a long time very careful to require frequent and regular repayments from all their customers and did not care to deal with any person, whatever might be his fortune or credit, who did not make what they called frequent and regular operations with them. By this attention, besides saving almost entirely the extraordinary expense of replenishing their coffers, they gained two other very considerable advantages. First, by this attention, they were enabled to make some tolerable judgment concerning the thriving or declining circumstances of their debtors without being obliged to look out for any other evidence besides what their own books afforded them, men being for the most part either regular or irregular in their payments according as their customers are either thriving or declining. A private man who lends out his money to perhaps a dozen or a dozen of debtors may, either by himself or his agents, observe and inquire both constantly and carefully into the conduct and situation of each of them. But a banking company, which lends money to perhaps 500 different people and of which the attention is continually occupied by objects of a very different kind, can have no regular information concerning the conduct and circumstances of the greater part of its debtors beyond what its own books afforded. In requiring frequent and regular repayments from all their customers, the banking companies of Scotland had probably this advantage in view. Secondly, by this attention, they secured themselves from the possibility of issuing more paper money than what the circulation of the country could easily absorb and employ. 
when they observed that within moderate periods of time the repayments of a particular customer were upon most occasions fully equal to the advantage which they had made to him, they might be assured that the paper money which they had circulated to him had not at any time exceeded the quantity of gold and silver which he would otherwise have been obliged to keep by him for answering occasional demands, and that, consequently, the paper money which they had circulated by this means had not at any time exceeded the quantity of gold and silver which would have circulated in the country had there been no paper money damn this is a crazy ass system McJenny says usury is forbidden Leviticus chapter 25 36 take thou no usury of him or increase but fear thy God that thy brother may live with thee 37. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. The Bible says no usury. And uh, lest we misunderstand um, the definition of usury, um, it is illegal. It's the practice of lending money at an interest rate that is considered unreasonably high or that is higher than the rate permitted by law. It can also refer to the act of making a loan at such an interest rate. The term may be used in a moral sense to condemn taking advantage of others' misfortunes or in a legal sense to charge an interest rate in excess of the maximum rate that is allowed by law. So taking advantage of people we can say very simply that's what usury is <clears throat> all right so the frequency continuing the frequency regularity and amounts of his repayments would sufficiently demonstrate that the amount of their advances had at no time exceeded that part of his capital which he would otherwise have been obliged to keep by him unemployed and in ready money for answering occasional demands that is for the purpose of keeping the rest of his capital in constant employment. It is this part of his capital only which, within moderate periods of time, is continually returning to every dealer in the shape of money, whether paper or coin, and continually going from him in the same shape. Gosh, I like how he says the same shape. It keeps reminding me of how all this is alchemy. Because in circulation, in, in circulating capital, it, is changing shape. Money becomes materials, becomes uh, commodities, and so on and so forth. And it always circulates in different shapes, whereas fixed capital stays in one place at the time and is the thing that changes the shape of the, the different things that come in and out. But again, I don't want to, I'm not going to get too much into that, but this is, this is kind of awesome to me, at least the way I'm understanding it. I'm, I'm getting excited here. So... Um, it is the part of the capital which, within moderate periods of time, is occasionally returning to every dealer in the shape of money, whether paper or coin, and continually going from him in the same shape. If the advances of the bank had commonly exceeded this part of his capital, the ordinary amount of his repayments could not, within moderate periods of time, have equaled the ordinary amount of its advances. The stream which, by means of his dealings, was continually running into the coffers of the bank could not have been equal to the stream which, by means of the same dealings, was continually running out. The advances of the bank paper, 
by exceeding the quantity of gold and silver which, had there been no such advances, he would have been obliged to keep by him for answering occasional demands, might soon come to exceed the whole quantity of gold and silver which, the commerce being supposed the same, would have circulated in the country had there been no paper money, and consequently to exceed the quantity which the circulation of the country could easily absorb and employ, and the excess of this paper money would immediately have returned upon the bank in order to be exchanged for gold and silver. This second advantage, though equally real, was not perhaps so well understood by all the different banking companies of Scotland as the first. When, partly by the conveniency of discounting bills and partly by that of cash accounts, the creditable traders of any country can be dispensed from the necessity of keeping any part of their stock by them employed, excuse me, the creditable traders of any country can be dispensed from the necessity of keeping any part of their stock by them unemployed and in ready money for answering occasional demands, they can reasonably expect no farther assistance from the banks and bankers who, when they have gone thus far, cannot, consistently with their own interest and safety, go further. A bank cannot, consistently with its own interest, advance to a trader the whole or even the greater part of the circulating capital with which he trades because, though that capital is continually returning to him in the shape of money and going from him in, in the same shape, yet the whole of the return is too distant from the whole of the outgoings, and the sum of his repayments could not equal the sum of its advances within such moderate periods of time as suit the conveniency of a bank. Still, less... Still, less could a bank afford to advance him any considerable part of his fixed capital, the, of the capital which the undertaker of an iron forge, for example, employs in erecting his forge and dwelling house, his workhouses and warehouses, the dwelling house of his workmen, etc., of the capital which the undertaker of a mine employs in sinking his shafts, in erecting engines for drawing out the water, in making road and wagon ways, etc., of the capital which the person who undertakes to improve the land employs in clearing draining and closing, manuring and plowing waste and uncultivated fields in building farmhouses with all their necessary appendages of stables, granaries, etc., the returns of the fixed capital are in almost all cases much slower than those of the circulating capital, and such expenses, even when laid out with the greatest prudence and judgment, very seldom return to the undertaker till after a period of many years, a period by far too distant to suit the conveniency of a bank. Traders and other undertakers may, no doubt, with great propriety, carry on a very considerable part of their projects with borrowed money. In justice to their creditors, however, their own capital ought, in this case, to be sufficient to ensure, if I may say so, the capital of those creditors, or to render it extremely improbable that those creditors should incur any loss, even though the success of the project should fall very much short of the the expectation of the projectors. Even with this precaution, too, the money which is borrowed and which it is meant should not be repaid till after a period of several years ought not to be borrowed of a bank, but ought to be borrowed upon bond or mortgage of such private people as propose to live upon the interest of their money, without taking the trouble themselves to employ the capital, and who are upon that account willing to lend that capital to such people of good credit as are likely to keep it for several years. A bank, indeed, which lends its money without the expense of stamped paper or of attorney's fees for drawing bonds and mortgages, and which accepts of repayment upon the 
easy terms with the banking companies of Scotland would no doubt be a very convenient creditor to such traders and undertakers. But such traders and undertakers would surely be most inconvenient debtors to such a bank. Huh. The banks. All right, so I wonder how much more of this do I have to go? Should I continue now or take a break? Because there's like a little asterisk, asterisk line under here that's indicating I should stop. Yeah, because there's not that much more, but I am yapping about it. And what time is it? It's not even 5 o'clock yet. I got plenty of time before I will take myself to work, wherever that may be. I don't have to actually go anywhere. Just don't, just, just won't be in the bookstore anymore after hours. All right. Hmm. There's really not that much more to go. I wonder if I could finish it in 30 minutes and make this less than two hours. Yeah, I might as well get it done. All right, well, you're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, so I'm going to stay here and just finish it. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, W-A-R, National Capital, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Equilibrium. Coming up on part three here, of, or my reading part three of uh, Wealth of Nations, uh, chapter two of book two, which is titled, um, a very lengthy title, which I have not taken to memory, because um, why would I? Um, where the hell have I really gone that many pages? Yeah, it's called... Um, of money considered as a particular branch of the general stock of the society or of the expense of maintaining the national capital. All right, so oh, let's continue here. Let's see what we got. So that last part was about the bankers and how they really wouldn't really want to lend to those who were uh, investing mostly in in uh, fixed capital, like machines and things like that, which were much slower in repaying any loans that were made to them. And so therefore, it's not convenient for the bankers to do so. And so those people should be buying from private lenders who um, can live off the interest rather than the principal being paid back to them. Whereas the banks don't like that because it'll take away in their stream, their outgoing stream, quicker than it would in their incoming stream. All right, so continuing. It is not by augmenting the capital of the country, but by rendering a greater part of that capital active and productive than would otherwise be so, that the most judicious operations of banking can increase the industry of the country. That part of his capital, which a dealer is obliged to keep by him unemployed and in ready money for answering occasional demands, is so much dead stock, which, so long as it remains in this situation, produces nothing, either to him or to his country. Right, so that's the stuff he has to hold on in case he's called upon to, uh, to pay back to debtors or whatever. But, but so much, but if it's, it ready for answering occasional demands, right? And those occasional demands can be anything, like emergencies or whatever. But it's, he says it's so much dead stock, which so long as it remains in this situation, produces nothing either to him or to his country. 
the judicious operations of banking enable him to convert this dead stock into active and productive stock, into materials to work upon, into tools to work with, and into provisions and subsistence to work for, into stock which produces something both to himself and to his country. The gold and silver money which circulates in any country and by means of which the produce of its land and labor is annually circulated and distributed to the, pay, to the proper consumers is, in the same manner as the ready money of the dealer, all dead stock. It is a very valuable part of the capital of the country, which produces nothing to the country. The judicious operations of banking by substituting paper in the room of a great part of this gold and silver enables the country to convert a great part of this dead stock into active and productive stock, into stock which produces something to the country. Okay, so now that idea has been filled out in my brain finally. So basically it's saying that when the, when the stuff, the money, the gold and silver, let's just keep stick with gold and silver, has to be kept by someone in their private stock in order to be as he says, in ready money for answering occasional demands, it's usually dead stock and can't produce anything. But by issuing paper money um, with that as collateral, then it helps turn that dead stock into active stock, which produces something to the country. Right. Continuing. So the gold and silver money which circulates in any country may very properly be compared to a highway. I like these analogies he's giving. Before there was a river, now a highway. All right. So... The gold and silver money which circulates in any country may very properly be compared to a highway, which, while it circulates and carries to market all the grass and corn of the country, produces itself not a single pile of either. Hmm. The gold and silver money which circulates in any country may very properly be compared to a highway, which, while it circulates and carries to market, all the grass and corn of the country produces itself not a single pile of either. Right, the gold doesn't produce anything. Like a highway, it puts it back and forth, but it's not producing it. Okay? The judicious operations of banking, by providing, if I may be allowed so violent a metaphor, a sort of wagon way through the air, enable the country to convert, as it were, a great part of its highways into good pastures and cornfields and thereby to increase very considerable the annual produce of its land and labor. The commerce and industry of the country, however, it must be acknowledged, though they may be somewhat augmented, cannot be altogether so secure when they are thus, as it were, suspended upon the Dedalian wings of paper money as when they travel about upon the gold, solid ground of gold and silver. What the hell is Dedalian. It's one of those words with the, the A and the E together. The A, D, A, E, D. Okay, let's, let's turn Mrs. Googles. Tell us about what this Dedalian is. D, A, E, D, E. Uh, there we go. And how is it pronounced, Kate? So... The Dalian is an adjective meaning ingeniously or cunningly designed. Okay, there we go. Now we've unlocked the secret of the word there. Wow, that's how he's describing money, because he says, he says, uh, <laughs> he says, as it were. I got you. Okay. Say what's up. I just I'm I'm I got a couple of 
I'll say what's up. Alright, so it must be acknowledged that though they may be somewhat augmented, cannot altogether be altogether so secure. Right, so good. I'm going to start from this line again. The commerce and industry of the country, however, it must be acknowledged, though they may be somewhat augmented, cannot be altogether so secure. Listen to this. Cannot be altogether so secure when they are thus, as it were, suspended upon the Dedalian wings of paper money. And remember, Dedalian wings of paper money. Dedalian means ingeniously or cunningly designed, artistic, ingenious, intricate, or skillful. It can also mean difficult to comprehend due to complexity or intricacy. Synonyms for Dedalian include tangled, labyrinthine, labyrinthine, knotty, elaborate, convoluted. Dedalius was a renowned craftsman, sculptor, and inventor. He built the Cretan labyrinth and made wings to enable himself and his son Icarus to escape imprisonment. Huh. <clears throat> right. So, the commerce and industry of the country, however, it must be acknowledged, though they may be somewhat augmented, cannot be altogether so secure when they are thus, as it were, suspended upon the Dedalian wings of paper money as when they travel about upon the solid ground of gold and silver, over and above the accidents to which they are exposed from the unskillfulness of the conductors of this paper money, they are liable to several others from which no prudence of will of those conductors can guard them. Hmm. All right. An unsuccessful war, for example, in which the enemy got possession of the capital and, consequence, and consequently of that treasure which supported the credit of the paper money would occasion a much greater confusion in a country where the whole circulation was carried on by paper than in one where the greater part of it was carried on by gold and silver. The usual instrument of commerce having lost its value, no exchanges could be made but either by barter or upon credit. All taxes having been usually paid in paper money, the prince would not have wherewithal either to pay his troops or to furnish his magazines, and the state of the country would be much more irretrievable than if the greater part of its circulation had consisted in gold and silver. Hmm. A prince, anxious to maintain his dominions at all times in the state in which he can, almost, he can most easily defend them, ought upon this account to guard not only against that excessive multiplication of paper money which ruins the very banks which issue it, but even against that multiplication of it which enables them to fill the greater part of the circulation of the country with it. What the... F Yo, they were saying what's up, up with this long time ago. I, here I am thinking in the 20th and 21st century that I'm finding something out about fractional reserve banking and and inflation with paper money and excessive paper money in circulation. They've been talking about this shit since way back. This is 1776. <clears throat> and he's still, I'm st we're still getting schooled by Adam Smith. A prince anxious to maintain his dominions at all times in the state, which he can most easily defend them, 
ought upon this account to guard not only against that excessive multiplication of paper money which ruins the very banks which issue it, but even against that multiplication of it, which enables them to fill the greater part of the circulation of the country with it. I mean, Adam Smith, he, he wrote the book on how to prevent um, this crazy shit that's going on in the world right now with money, but also how to do it. Like, he, this is just, it's like a... It's it's like a it's like nuclear power. You can use it to power whole countries with it or blow them up. This this that's what this book is, is looking like to me. The circulation of every continuing, the circulation of every country may be considered as divided into two different branches. The circulation of the dealers with one another and the circulation between the dealers and the consumers. Though the same pieces of money, whether paper or metal, may be employed sometimes in the one circulation and sometimes in the other, yet as both are constantly going on at the same time, each requires a certain stock of money of one kind or another to carry it on. The value of the goods circulated between the different dealers never can exceed the value of those circulated between the dealers and the consumers. Whatever is bought by the dealers being ultimately destined to be sold to the consumers. The circulation between the dealers as it is carried on by wholesale requires generally a pretty large sum for every particular transaction. That between the dealers and the consumers, on the contrary, as it is generally carried on by retail, frequently requires but very small ones, a shilling or even a halfpenny being often sufficient. But small sums circulate much faster than large ones. A shilling changes masters more frequently than a guinea, and a halfpenny more frequently than a shilling. Though the annual purchases of all the consumers, therefore, are at least equal in value to those of all the dealers, they can generally be transacted with a much smaller quantity of money, the same pieces, by a more rapid circulation, serving as the instrument of many more purchases of the one kind than of the other. Paper money may be so regulated as either to confine itself very much to the circulation between the different dealers or to extend itself likewise to a great part of that between the dealers and the consumers. Where no banknotes are circulated under £10 value, as in London, paper money confines itself very much to the circulation between dealers. When a £10 banknote comes into the hands of a consumer, he is generally obliged to change it at the top, change it at the first shop where he has occasion to purchase five shillings worth of goods, so that it often returns to the hands of a dealer before the consumer has spent the 40th part of the money. Where banknotes are issued for, for so small sums as 20 shillings, as in Scotland, paper money extends itself to a considerable part of the circulation between dealers and consumers. Before the Act of Parliament, which put a stop to the circulation of 10 and 5 shilling notes, it filled a still greater part of that circulation. In the currencies of North America, paper was commonly issued for so small a sum as a shilling and filled almost the whole of that circulation. In some paper currencies of Yorkshire, it was issued even for so small a sum as a sixpence. Where the issuing of banknotes for such very small sums is allowed and commonly practiced, many mean people 
are both enabled and encouraged to become bankers. A person whose promissory note for five pounds or even for 20 shillings would be rejected by everybody will get it to be received without scruple when it is issued for so small a sum as the sixpence. But the frequent bankruptcies to which such beggarly bankers must be liable may occasion a very considerable inconveniency and sometimes even a great calamity to many poor people who had received their notes in payment. It were better perhaps, that no banknotes were issued in any part of the kingdom for a smaller sum than five pounds. Paper money would then probably confine itself in every part of the kingdom to the circulation between the different dealers as much as it does at present in London, where no banknotes are issued under ten pounds value, five pounds being, in most parts of the kingdom, a sum which, though it will purchase perhaps a little more than half the quantity of goods, is as much considered and is as seldom spent all at once as ten pounds are amidst the profuse expense of London. Damn. So also by limiting the smaller bills in circulation, you can shore up, shore up some of the problems with inflation. And, oh man, all right. Excuse moi. Let's see here. Continuing, where paper money, it is to be observed, is pretty much confined to the circulation between dealers and dealers, as at London, there is always plenty of gold and silver, yes. Where it extends itself to a considerable part of the circulation between dealers and consumers, as in Scotland, and still more in North America, it banishes gold and silver almost entirely from the country, almost all the ordinary transactions of its interior commerce being thus carried on by paper. The suppression of ten and five shilling banknotes somewhat relieved the scarcity of gold and silver in Scotland, and the suppression of twenty shilling notes would probably relieve it still more. Those metals are said to have become more abundant in America since the suppression of some of their paper currencies. They are said, likewise, to have been more abundant before the institution of those currencies. Yes, of course. Though paper money should be pretty much confined to the circulation between dealers and dealers, yet banks and bankers might still be able to give nearly the same assistance to the industry and commerce of the country as they had done when paper money filled almost their whole circulation. The ready money, which a dealer is obliged to keep by him for answering occasional demands, is destined altogether for the circulation between himself and other dealers of whom he buys goods. He has no occasion to keep any by him for the circulation between himself and the consumers who are his customers and who bring ready money to him instead of taking any from him. Though no paper money, therefore, was allowed to be issued for such sums as would confine it to pretty much the circulation between dealers and dealers, yet partly by discounting real bills of exchange and partly by lending upon cash accounts, banks and bankers might still be able to relieve the greater part of those dealers from the necessity of keeping any considerable part of their stock by them, unemployed and in ready money, for answering occasional demands. They might still be able to give the utmost assistance which banks and bankers can, with propriety, give to traders of every kind. Hmm. This next part seems to be interesting. To restrain private people, it may be said, from receiving in payment the promissory notes of a banker for any sum, whether great or small, 
when they themselves are willing to receive them or to restrain a banker from issuing such notes when all his neighbors are willing to accept of them is a manifest violation of that natural liberty which it is the proper business of law not to infringe but to support. Hmm. Such regulations may no doubt be considered as in some respect a violation of natural liberty, but those extensions of the natural liberty of a few individuals might endanger the security of the whole society, are and ought to be restrained by the laws of all governments, of the most free as well as of the most despotical. The obligation of building party walls in order to prevent the communication of fire is a violation of natural liberty, except of the same kind with the regulations of the banking trade which are here proposed. Wow. Hmm. A paper money consisting in banknotes issued by people of undoubted credit, payable upon demand without any condition, and in fact always readily paid as soon as presented, is in every respect equal in value to gold and silver money, since gold and silver money can at any time be had for it. Whatever is either bought for bought or sold for such paper must necessarily be bought or sold as cheap as it could have been for gold and silver. Yes, but it's not. Wow, the increase of paper money, it has been said, by augmenting the quantity and, the, and consequently diminishing the value of the whole currency, necessarily augments the money price of commodities. Yes, it inflates them. But as the quantity of gold and silver which is taken from the currency is always equal to the quantity of paper which is added to it, paper money does not necessarily increase the quantity of the whole currency. From the beginning of the last century to the present time, provisions never were cheaper in Scotland than in 1759, though, from the circulation of 10 and 5 shilling banknotes, there was then more paper money in the country than at present. The proportion between the prices of provisions in Scotland and that in England is the same now as before the great multiplication of banking companies in Scotland. Corn is, upon most occasions, fully as cheap in England as in France, though there is a great deal of paper money in England and scarce any in France. In 1751 and 1752, when Mr. Hume published his political discourses, and soon after the great multiplication of paper money in Scotland, there was a very sensible rise in the price of provisions, owing probably to the badness of the seasons and not to the multiplication of paper money. It would, other, it would be otherwise indeed with a paper money consisting in promissory notes of which the immediate payment depended in any respect either upon the goodwill of those who issued them or upon a condition which the holder of the notes might not always have it in his power to fulfill or of which the payment was not ex hmm? exigible. Hmm. All right. Another one. I know this word, but not uh, competently. So exigible. Let's take a look. Mr. and Mr. Googles. Ex exigible. Exigible. Con el droit de exigible. Do. That's all it means. It means do. All right. Exigible. I don't know. I don't speak French. So let me 
Let's okay, let's go. All right, so do. All right, that's what that word is, do. All right, so such a paper money would no doubt fall more or less below the value of gold and silver according as the difficulty or uncertainty of obtaining immediate payment was supposed to be greater or less or according to the greater or less distance of time at which payment was exigible. Some years ago, the different banking companies of Scotland were in the practice of inserting into their banknotes what they called an optional clause by which they promised payment to the bearer either as soon as the note should be presented or in the option of the directors six months after such presentment together with the legal interest for said six months. The directors of some of those banks sometimes took advantage of this optional clause and sometimes threatened those who demanded gold and silver in exchange for a considerable number of their notes that they would take advantage of it unless such demanders would content themselves with a, with a part of what they demanded. What the fuck? The promissory notes of those banking companies constituted at that time the far greater part of the currency of Scotland, which this uncertainty of payment necessarily degraded below the value of gold and silver money. During the continuance of this abuse, abuse which prevailed chiefly in 1762, 1763, and 1764, while the exchange between London and Carlisle was at par, that between London and Dumfries would sometimes be 4% against Dumfries, though this town is not 30 miles distant from Carlisle. But at Carlisle, bills were paid in gold and silver, whereas at Dumfries, they were paid in Scotch banknotes, and the uncertainty of getting those banknotes exchanged for gold and silver coin had thus degraded them 4% below the value of that coin. The same Act of Parliament, which suppressed 10 and 5 shilling banknotes, suppressed likewise this optional clause, and thereby restored the exchange between England and Scotland to its natural weight, or to what the course of trade and remittances might happen to make it. Messing stuff up for you. Oh boy. In the paper currencies of Yorkshire, the payment of so small a sum as a sixpence sometimes depended upon the condition that the holder of the note should bring the change of a guinea to the person who issued it, a condition which the holders of such notes might frequently find it very difficult to fulfill and which must have degraded this currency below the value of gold and silver money. An act of parliament, accordingly, declared all such clauses unlawful and suppressed in the same manner as in Scotland all promissory notes payable to the bearer under 20 shillings value. The paper currencies of North America consisted not in banknotes payable to the bearer on demand, but in a government paper of which the payment was not exigible, not due, till several years after it was issued. And though the colony governments uh, paid no interest to the holders of this paper, they declared it to be, and in fact rendered it, a legal tender of payment for the full value for which it was issued. But allowing the colony security to be perfectly good, a hundred pounds payable 15 years hence, for example, in a country where interest is at 6% six is worth little more than 40 pounds ready money. To oblige a creditor, therefore, to accept of this as full payment for a debt of a hundred pounds actually paid down in ready money was an act of such violent injustice as has scarce perhaps been attended by, attempted by the government of any other country which pretended to be free. What? Pretended to be free. It bears, gosh, pretended to be free. 
to oblige a creditor, therefore, to accept of this as full payment for a debt of a hundred pounds actually paid down in ready money was an act of such violent injustice as has scarce perhaps been attempted by the government of any other country which pretended to be free. He said pretended to be free. It bears the evident marks of having originally been what the honest and downright Dr. Douglas assures us it was, a scheme of fraudulent debtors to cheat their creditors. The government of Pennsylvania, indeed, pretended upon their first emission of paper money in 1722 to render their paper of equal value with gold and silver by enacting penalties against all those who made any difference in the price of their goods when they sold them for colony paper and when they sold them for gold and silver, a regulation equally tyrannical but much less effectual than that which it was meant to support. Wow. And of course, he's closer to this in the writing of this, you know, 1776, 1722. This is crazy. The government of Pennsylvania indeed pretended upon their first emission of paper money in 1722 to render their paper of equal value with gold and silver by enacting penalties against all of those who made any difference in the price of their goods when they sold them for colony paper and when they sold them for gold and silver. So if, for example... Let's just go by the ounce of gold. The close to the spot price today is is uh, something like two thousand dollars. So, if any, if if let's say say two, a gold coin worth two thousand dollars today's money would buy um, an iPhone, an iPhone 15 that's coming out, right? Two thousand dollars cash, right? And you can give them a gold coin for that, and it would pay for it straight out, equal exchange. But if the company, but if you were paying it for paper money instead, they would say, "Nah, you got to pay us two thousand one hundred or two thousand five hundred because it's paper money." They had a fine they would hit you with. They were like, "Nah, you can't do that because our paper money, our colony money, is equal to gold. It's backed by gold. It's it's this is gold standard." But he's saying, he's saying that that they pretended upon their first emission of paper money in 1722 to render their paper of equal value with gold and silver by enacting penalties against all those who made any difference in the price of their goods when they sold them for a colony paper and when they sold them for gold and silver, a regulation equally tyrannical but much less effectual than that which it was meant to support. A positive law may render a shilling a legal tender for a guinea, because it may direct the courts of justice to discharge the debtor who has made that tender. But no positive law can oblige a person who sells goods and who is at liberty to sell or not to sell as he pleases to accept of a shilling as equivalent to a guinea in the price of them. Notwithstanding any regulation of this kind, it appeared by the course of exchange with Great Britain that a hundred pounds sterling was occasionally considered as equivalent in some of the colonies to a hundred and thirty pounds. What the? It's a mark of 30%. And in others, to so great a sum as 1,100 pounds currency. This difference in the value arising is 3%. Yeah, 3%. 3%. 100 pounds was a cage, you can say there's a equivalent of some kind to 130. Well, 
and others to so great as a sum of 1,100 pounds currency. This difference in the value arising from the difference in the quantity of paper emitted in the different colonies and in the distance and probability of the term of its final discharge and redemption. No law, therefore, could be more equitable than the act of Parliament so unjustly complained of in the colonies which declared that no paper currency to be emitted there in time coming should be a legal tender of payment. Pennsylvania was always more moderate in its emission of paper money than any other of our colonies. Its paper, our colonies, he says, <clears throat> its paper currency, accordingly, is said never to have sunk below the value of the gold and silver which was current in the colony before the first emission of its paper money. Before that emission, the colony had raised the denomination of its coin and had, by act of assembly, ordered five shillings sterling to pass in the colony for six and three pence, and afterwards for six and eight pence, a pound colony currency. Therefore, even when that current... Okay, sorry... Before that emission, the colony had raised the denomination of its coin and had, by act of assembly, ordered five shillings sterling to pass in the colony for six and three pence. So that's six shillings and three pence sterling. And afterwards, for six and eight pence. A pound colony currency, therefore, even when that currency was gold and silver, was more than 30% below the value of a pound sterling. And when that currency was turned into paper, it was seldom much more than 30% below the value. The pretense for raising the denomination of the coin was to prevent the exportation of gold and silver by making equal quantities of those metals pass for greater sums in the colony than they did in the mother country. It was found, however, that the price of all goods from the mother country rose exactly in proportion as they raised the denomination of their coin so that their gold and silver were exported as fast as ever. The paper of each colony being received in the payment of the provincial taxes for the full value for which it had been issued, it necessarily derived from this use some additional value over and above what it would have had from the real or supposed distance of the term of its financial discharge and redemption. This additional value was greater or less according as the quantity of paper issued was more or less above what could be employed in the payment of taxes of the regular of the particular colony which issued it. It was, all, it was in all the colonies very much above what, it, what could be employed in this manner. Checking my time, I'm almost done. All right. Let's go here. How much time do I have left? Oh, good. It's 156. Out. This last two, one and a half pages can be read in under four minutes. All right. This is the final lap. A prince who should enact that a certain proportion of his taxes should be paid in paper money of a certain kind might thereby give a certain value to this paper money, even though the term of its final discharge and redemption should depend altogether upon the will of the prince. If the bank which issued this paper was careful to keep the quantity of it always somewhat below what could easily, easily be employed in this manner, the demand for it might be such as to make it even bear a premium or sell for somewhat more in the market than the quantity of gold or silver currency for which it was issued. 
Some people account in this manner for what is called the agio of the, the agio of the Bank of Amsterdam, or for the superiority of bank money over current money, though this bank money, as they pretend, cannot be taken out of the bank at the will of the owner. The greater part of foreign bills of exchange must be paid in bank money, that is, by a transfer in the books of the bank, and the directors of the bank, they allege, are careful to keep the whole quantity of the bank money always below what this use occasions a demand for. It is upon this account, they say, that bank money sells for a premium or bears an agio of 4 or 5 percent above the same nominal sum of the gold and silver currency of the country. This account of the Bank of Amsterdam, however, it will appear hereafter, is in a great measure chimerical. Holy shit. He, he, he said one of my favorite words, chimerical. It's a it's a monster, it's a mix, it's a blend. It's it's a it's a it's a mutant. A paper currency which falls below the value of gold and silver coin does not thereby sink the value of those metals, or occasion equal quantities of them to exchange for a smaller quantity of goods of any other kind. The proportion between the value of gold and silver and that of goods of any other kind depends, in all cases, not upon the nature or quantity of any particular paper money, which may be current in any particular country, but upon the richness or poverty of the mines, which happen at any particular time to supply the great market of the commercial world with those metals. It depends upon the proportion between the quantity of labor, which is necessary in order to bring a certain quantity of gold and silver to market, and that which is necessary in order to bring thither a certain quantity of any other sort of goods. If bankers are restrained from issuing any circulating banknotes or notes payable to the bearer for less than a certain sum, and if they are subjected to the obligation of an immediate and unconditional payment of such banknotes as soon as presented, their trade may, with safety to the public, be rendered in all other respects perfectly free. The late multiplication of banking companies in both parts of the United Kingdom, an event by which many people have been much alarmed, instead of diminishing, increases the security of the public. It obliges all of them to be more circumspect in their conduct and, by not extending their currency beyond its due proportion to their cash, to guard themselves against those malicious runs which the rivalship of so many competitors is always ready to bring upon them. It restrains the circulation of each particular company with a narrower circle and reduces their circulating notes to a smaller number. By dividing the whole circulation into a greater number of parts, the failure of any one company, an accident which, in the course of things, must sometimes happen, becomes of less consequence to the public. This free competition, too, obliges all bankers to be more liberal in their dealings with their customers, lest their rivals should carry them away. In general, if any branch of trade or any division of labor be advantageous to the public, the freer and more general the competition, it would always be the more so. Whoa. All right, you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War 
National Capital, presented by Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Call-In Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Unique Equilibrium. I have a lot to go over here, um, but that's the end of it. I've got to be done with that because that was a long reading. But until next time, thanks for hanging out. What's up, Sarah, Andrew Johnson, Anthony Bonner, Marcianne, Levi, Daily Ship, Lois Hansen, Dr. Robert James Goodman, Truly Julie, Greg Stake, Life Love Lessons, Mary Kay, Lee News Debate, Kristen Brown, Soldier of God, Linda Van der Merwe, Colby, Sharon Sunny, and Abd Mansuri over on Wisdom. And hey, Jenny, thank you for your contributions and for hanging out over here on uh, Colin. Um, and also for Reza and Zach, I'll talk to you guys soon. i got to get out now, though, because I'm 